Revelation chapter 21 today. Heard about a preacher who died and went to heaven. And as he was about to enter, there was an angel there at the gate, checking people in and getting them on their way to their heavenly home. He noticed that in front of him was a gentleman who was a New York City taxicab driver. And the angel asked him, what was your name? He said, my name is Bill. What was your occupation? I was a New York City taxicab driver. The angel looked through the Lamb's Book of Life. Oh, here you are. There you are, Bill. Showed him over on a grand hillside, a sprawling mansion. He said, welcome in, Bill. Enjoy your eternal reward. Now it was the preacher's turn. He stepped up next in line, spoke to the angel. The angel said, what is your name? He said, my name is John. Okay, John, I see your name here in the Lamb's Book of Life. What was your a purpose on earth. He said, well, I was a preacher of the gospel. I faithfully preached for 40 plus years. The angel said, yes, we, we have a record of that. Here are your accommodations. And he pointed to a, a rather small shack. And he said, welcome, preacher, come on in, enjoy your heavenly home. Well, the preacher was kind of confused about that. He couldn't make sense of that. How come the taxi cab driver got a sprawling mansion on a hill, and he got a little shack. That sort of irked him. And so he asked the angel, he said, this isn't right. He said, how come the taxi cab driver got a better place than I did? The angel, he began to explain. He said, well, that's easy, friend. He said, that taxi cab driver had a greater spiritual impact than you did in your 40 years of ministry. And the preacher said, how, how could that be? And the angel explained. He said, well, you see, when you preached, people slept. But when he drove, people prayed. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever been in any of those taxi cabs, but you will do some praying like you ain't ever done before. But that's one of the things that comes along with city living. And the media was all abuzz a, a few years ago when Bill Gates, who is the founder of Microsoft and one of the smartest men in the world, announced he would be building a smart city of the future. The billionaire tech giant had purchased over 24,000 acres in southwest Arizona for the purpose of what he called building the city of tomorrow. The city would be called Belmont, and Gates predicted that it would one day sustain 185,000 residents. And he talked about how that integral to this city of the future was that it would be a smart city. And what he meant by that is that the whole city would be connected by a network of information. He said, imagine public Wi-Fi and devices and roads and cars and buses and traffic lights and lampposts all talking to one another through technology. He said, in Belmont, cars will drive themselves. High-speed fiber optic will connect everything. Schools and hospitals will have all the cutting-edge tools. And because it is in the middle of the desert, most of Belmont's electricity will be generated by solar arrays and wind farms. With that emphasis on high-tech, Bill Gates promised that this startup city will lure all kinds of businesses and industries to open up shop there 
in his city. One tech guru who studied this summed up Gates' utopia like this, saying it's a smart urban center with a dash of sci-fi thrown in. And so, for some, the city of Belmont sounds like a little slice of heaven here on earth. But I can guarantee you, as high-tech as that city might be, I guarantee you they'll have the same problems that every city on earth has had. Pollution and traffic and crime. That's because anything built here on the planet earth is under the curse of sin. But one day, the Bible says, God has prepared a city and it will descend from heaven and it will be heaven's capital city here on the earth. And friend, it will be different than any other city ever built because it will be free of sin. Now, think of all the world's most grand cities, Paris and New York and Tokyo, London, Dubai, and some would even say, let's throw Asheville in that mix. If you take all the positive things about those places and you combine them into a super metropolis, they would still pale in comparison to the city that God is preparing for those who love Him. I want to talk to you today about the new Jerusalem. And that term is mentioned about a dozen times in the span of Revelation 21 and 22. It's alluded to numerous times throughout Scripture as the eventual and ultimate destination of all the redeemed, all of God's people. The Bible says this about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. It says that he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we could say that about everyone who's ever lived that's followed God, that's lived by faith, and put their profession in Jesus Christ. So today, we're going to be taking a biblical tour of the believer's heavenly home. The Bible says that after the millennial age of Christ, after He reigns on the earth for a thousand years, He'll renovate the earth by fire, He will remove the curse, He'll remake the planet, it'll be a pristine as it was in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. And then, New Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, will descend and dwell on the earth. And God and man will live together in this place called New Jerusalem. As we open our Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation 21 and verse 9. And I want you to see the first thing about this city is the splendor of the city. The splendor. Now, as we are about to read John's description of this heavenly city, it becomes very obvious that our brother is limited by the constraints of language. Human words and earthly concepts become quite beggarly when you are trying to describe the glory of heaven. But this was John's task to describe the splendor of the city, and he points out several features of heaven's capital. Notice what it says in verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away into the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the three east gates, on the north three gates, the south three gates, and on the west three gates... And on the wall of the city, there were twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We'll stop right there for the moment. 
the new Jerusalem will be the most extravagant city that has ever been built. As you notice there, the building materials will be that of precious stone. Gold, which is highly prized on this earth, sought after by kings and emperors, will be nothing more than pavement in God's capital city. Diamonds and rubies and sapphires which adorn our precious jewelry and which is secure in the safes of the wealthy will be as common as mortar, brick and mortar, in the city of God. Now you ask yourself, why did God choose these materials as He built the splendorous New Jerusalem? Well, I think Ron Rhodes, a Bible scholar, offers a great answer to that in one of his books on heaven. Notice what he wrote. He said, quote, One thing is for certain. The heavenly city is designed to reflect the incredible glory of God. This is especially so when we consider that all manner of precious stones will be used in this eternal city. Just as light plays upon the many facets of a shimmering gem, this city will show forth the incredible beauty of all of God's attributes. Now, every engineer knows that a house is only as good as its foundation. And as we read here, the New Jerusalem is not just going to have one, but it's going to have twelve foundations. On each one of those foundations will be the names of the twelve apostles. And moreover, the twelve gates that surround the city, three on each side, will have the twelve tribes of Israel, those names inscribed on each gate. And so you see that the layout of God's eternal city, the gates and the foundations are a picture of God's salvation, of God's grace all throughout time to all people, both to those under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Jews and the Gentiles all coming together, the redeemed people of God. You know, it reminds me of a story that I heard about a grandpa and his little granddaughter who were taking a walk. They were walking along and they were sharing that beautiful evening together. The stars were magnificent as they sparkled in the sky. The grandfather started to name the stars. He said, you see that over there? That's the planet Mars. And there's the Big Dipper, honey. And look over there. There's another constellation. And the granddaughter exclaimed, she said, Grandpa, if the bottom side of heaven is this beautiful, imagine what the top side's going to look like. You think about that, friend. Now the Bible says that John describes each great tower as carved out of a single pearl. Look what the Bible says in verse 21. Drop down and we'll read that. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of that city was pure gold like transparent glass. Wow. As I read that and I think about the size of those gates made of one giant pearl, that's one big oyster, friend. Now I like what W.A. Criswell wrote about that. He pointed this out. He said, Among the ancients, the pearl was the highest in value among the precious stones. And the reason is because the pearl, watch this, is formed through the oyster's pain. The pearl is formed by an animal in travail and suffering. The pearl must symbolize that our access into the city of God was formed through the suffering of Christ on our behalf. Friend, you think about that. Does that bless you every time that you go in or go out of that great city? Through the gates, 
those gates of pearl, will be reminded that the only reason that we are there is because of the pain and the suffering of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose wounds grant us access into the city of God. I think about Charles Spurgeon. He said there'll be only one man-made thing in heaven. Only one man-made thing. He said that'll be the wounds in Jesus' side. You think about that, friend. Greater than the greats of pearl will be our Savior who will be there. His wounds are what made it possible for us to walk those city streets, to walk through those gates. And friend, we'll lay our hands on Him. We'll see Him face to face. We'll praise Him with the angels and the redeemed. Like Thomas, we'll put our fingers in those nail scars. We'll declare like Thomas, my Lord and my God. And those scars will tell an everlasting story. They'll be an eternal reminder to you and I of what it costs the Savior to purchase our salvation. Oh friend, those scars on our Savior will tell the greatest love story that's ever been told. Jesus says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Friend, He chose the nails and it will tell us that the Lamb has overcome. The Lamb has triumphed. I'm talking about the splendor of that city. Then I also want you to see Number two, the size of that city. The size of that city. Verse 15, The one who spoke to, with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square in its length and the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. Twelve thousand stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits by a human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. You know, as I think about the size of that city, I'm reminded of what the experts are worried about today. They tell us that by the year 2030, that about 60% of the world's population will be living in cities. Now, if I can have anything to say about that, I'm not a city dweller. <laughs> I hope that's not true. One fear that people have about our world is the fear of overpopulation. But friend, as we read about the size of the heavenly city, I'm going to tell you that's not one problem that we'll have in heaven. Because the scope and the size of the new Jerusalem will be like that of a small country. Now the Bible tells us that its length and its width and its height are all the same. And from that we can infer that this is describing an enormous cube. 12,000 stadia by 12,000 by 12,000. Now, we don't use that unit of measurement today, but scholars have done the work to translate that into our miles, and 12,000 stadia is the equivalent of 1,400 miles. And so think about that. The ground level of the city will be nearly 2 million square miles. The size will be enormous. So let's put the New Jerusalem into perspective. It's going to be 20 times as big as the island of New Zealand. It'll be 10 times as big as Germany and France. 40 times as big as England. 15,000 times as large as London. A city that is so large, it will be a continent unto itself. In fact, if you were to take the footprint of the New Jerusalem and you were to superimpose it over the United States... 
This is how much it would take up. It would extend from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, from Colorado over to the Atlantic Ocean. All the cities of the world are but mere villages compared to the city that God is preparing. When you think about that staggering size, it makes me wonder, how are we going to get around in God's city? Well, friend, I've got good news. You won't need a taxi. You won't need to take the subway or the train. Because remember, you'll be living in a resurrected, sinless, deathless, ageless, painless body, just like that of our Lord's. And according to the Scripture, those bodies will be able to defy the laws of physics. They'll be able to do things that will not apply to us now in this natural world. If Jesus was able to pass through walls and appear into thin air, then I don't think getting around the new Jerusalem is going to be any problem for the people of God. You think about the size of the city and the splendor of the city, but then I also want to point out to you the sanctity of that city. Oh, it's going to be a holy city. Notice what verse 22 says. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives us light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will walk the nations, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and the gates will never be shut by day. There will never be night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing, watch this, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see it there? The sanctity of this city. Notice verse 25 tells us that the gates will remain open all the time. That's significant. Tells us at least a couple of things. First, that there'll be no threat to the city's inhabitants. And second, the inhabitants of that city will be able to come and go as they please. I kind of think of it in terms of like going to Carowinds or Dollywood and you go to the fair and you get your hand stamped, right? And you get, that, you get that stamp and it gives you freedom to go about, to go in and out of the park, to come back as long as you have that stamp. You can enjoy all that it has to hold. Well, we'll have total freedom in that holy city to enjoy all of God's blessings. All the parks and the museums and the restaurants and the libraries and the concerts and everything that that city has to offer will be able to enjoy it and the new heavens and the new earth. And then the Bible tells us there in verse 27 that no one detestable will be there. It'll be the first city in all of history, listen, with no police department. It won't need one. The reason is because there'll be no sin. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary, listen to what it says about that. It says the holy city will be one in which no lie will be uttered in a hundred million years. No evil word will be spoken. No shady business deals will ever be discussed. No unclean picture will ever be seen. No corruption of life will manifest. The new Jerusalem, listen to this, will have no dark alleys. No taverns, houses of ill repute, casinos, crack houses, or funeral homes. It will be holy because everyone in it will be holy. And friend, the enemy of our souls, Satan, will be thrown in the lake of fire. No Satan to tempt you and no flesh nature to be tempted with. The sanctity of the city, 
the splendor and the size of the city. But then, oh, we already read about this. Number four, I want you to see the sunlight of the city. And I'm not talking about the S-U-N. I'm talking about the S-O-N. Look at what verse 23 tells us. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Twice in this passage we're told there'll be no need for the sun. Instead, the source of illumination in God's holy city will be the glory of the S-O-N. Christ, the light of the world, His glory shall fill the streets of the new Jerusalem. His countenance will gladden our every step. Now notice something important here. This verse doesn't say that there will be no more sun or moon, but it says that there will be no need for the light of the sun. There's a difference. The brilliance of Christ in that city will make the stars look like tiny little birthday candles. Randy Alcorn writes about this in a beautiful way. He says, God Himself will be the light source of the new Jerusalem. Restoring the original pattern that existed in Genesis 1 before the creation of sun and moon. God's light preceded the celestial bodies in Genesis 1. And so it will be again another example of how the last chapters of the Bible reestablished God's original pattern from the first chapters. What a beautiful thing. The sunlight of that city. Think about the old song that we sing from time to time. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace, when He takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. The sunlight of the city. He'll be the love of every heart and the name on every lips. He'll be the subject of every song of heaven. The Son of God, Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is Jesus Christ, the Lamb and the Light. Then I want you to notice this. Oh, the satisfaction of the city. Verse 22. Excuse me, chapter 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the Lamb of God, the throne of God, will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Oh, the tree of life. It forms bookends in the Bible. In Genesis to Revelation, we see the tree of life. It's one of the most fascinating subjects to study in all the Scripture because the Bible, as we open in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a garden. And now as we close in the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, what we see is the same imagery of a garden. In Eden, paradise was lost when Adam and Eve sinned and their access to the tree of life was barred. But now in Revelation, paradise is regained. And humanity is given freedom once again to pluck the succulent fruit from that tree of life. The Bible says it will be there for the healing of the nations. Some of you have been wondering, are we going to eat in heaven? <laughs> you better believe it. 
Calorie free, I pray too. Here's your answer, Revelation 22. You realize something as I studied this? There's only been two people in human history who have ever eaten unfallen food with perfect taste buds. <laughs> Adam and Eve. But one day, friend, imagine... How with a resurrected body, with redeemed taste buds, how good is that fruit, is that food going to be that God is prepared for His bride? I was thinking about this the other day. One of my favorite fruits during the summer is peaches. I love to go get peaches. And I went down to the farmer's market several times this summer and bought me a basket of those peaches. I love to get a big, plump peach cut it in half, take the pit out, and I just start cramming that thing in. And the juice, when the juice comes rolling down your chin and rolling down your elbow, you know you've got a really good peach. You think about going to the tree of life and grabbing a piece of that fruit off of it and plunging it in your mouth. And the juice and the sweetness. And oh, won't it be great to be satisfied in the place of God, in the city of God. Why, friend, with the curse removed, I think maybe even squash might taste good. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be growing on the tree, but I might give it a try. Now notice the parallels here between Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis, the heavens and the earth are created. In Revelation, we have the new heavens and the new earth created. In Genesis, the sun was made. In Revelation, we have no need for the sun. In Genesis, night was established. In Revelation, there will be no night. In Genesis, seas were created. In Revelation, we read that there will be no seas. Genesis, we see rivers in Eden. And now in Revelation, we see rivers coming from the throne of God. In Genesis, the curse is announced. But in Revelation, the curse is annulled. In Genesis, death enters. But in Revelation, death exits. Man's access to the tree of life was denied in Genesis, but it is restored in Revelation. Sorrow and pain begin in Genesis 3. But when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, sorrow and pain will end. In heaven, no drooping or pining. No wishing for elsewhere to be. God's light is forever there shining. How beautiful heaven must be. How beautiful heaven must be. Sweet home of the happy and free. Fair haven of rest for the weary. How beautiful heaven must be. And then lastly, as we finish today, we see the servants of the city. The splendor and the size and the sanctity the sunlight, the satisfaction, and the servants. Verse 3 and following Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign Forever and ever. One misconception that people have about heaven is that we're going to get there and we're going to sit around on clouds and strum harps and eat bonbons and heaven's going to be just one never-ending church service. Friend, that's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, there'll be worship in heaven. But you need to understand here what it says 
in verse 3. Look at that little phrase. His servants will worship Him. What's a servant do? A servant serves. Right? We will serve Jesus Christ throughout eternity. What will our positions be? Well, those will be determined by the individual personalities and the gifts and the faithfulness of our stewardship here on the earth. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21 in His parable of the talents. He said, The Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set much over you, enter into the joy of your Master. I will be working in heaven. We'll have job descriptions, but it'll be different because the curse of the fall will be removed. Imagine planting a garden in the new earth. And friend, you won't have to fight against the weeds and the thorns. There won't be any thorns on the rose bush in God's garden. Friend, there won't be one grave on the hillside of glory. Imagine toiling and not breaking a sweat. Imagine not having to fight against the creation. We'll have the best bodies. We'll have the best materials at hand. No longer will we have to fight in frustration and futility like we do at our jobs. You'll never have a case of the Mondays in God's eternal city. You can begin a project, stop, go off on an adventure, come back and finish it as your leisure because, friend, you got nothing but eternity to worship and serve God. We'll be permitted to finish Many of the tasks that we dreamed here on earth. Think about something that you've always wanted to learn. Something that you've always wanted to do, but you've never been able to do it because your body isn't working like it should. You don't have the money. You don't have the resources. You don't have the time to invest in a skill and develop yourself. But friend, in eternity, with a redeemed body, being able to worship Jesus Christ, you'll be able to learn new things and do new things and serve God forever and ever. You'll be able to perfect a skill in a resurrection body. You won't be hindered by fatigue or error. Think about being a musician, having a chance to write a symphony and play in it to the glory of Jesus Christ. Think about being an adventure seeker. You'll have all new territory to explore. Scientists will have the ability to develop new technologies for the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going to be, but friend, You'll be able to serve God like never before. There'll be no end to the ways in which we can work and which we can worship Him forever and ever. But you know what? Not everybody that talks about heaven is going there. That's the sad reality. Is that so many people hear a message like this and they say, Wow, Derek, that's great. It's, it's pie in the sky by and by. But friend... I believe every word in this book. And I don't believe that Jesus Christ is a liar. He came, He died, He rose again. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. He came and He told us about the wonderful beauty and splendor of heaven. And friend, you'd be a fool to turn it down. You'd be a fool to turn down the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I'll come some other way, Lord. There's no other way to enter the gate of that city except the one way that God has provided, the way, the truth, and the life, and His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only way. You know, Johnny Cash realized that. I was reading in his autobiography this week. 
Johnny Cash wrote about in his book the defining moment of his life. He said it happened when he was 10 years old. He had an older brother named Jack. Jack was two years older than Johnny, and he was his hero. He said that Jack was an unusual boy because from a young age, he always wanted to grow up and be a preacher. And he would often read his Bible to Johnny as they went to sleep by the candlelight. Johnny said on May 12, 1944, is a day I'll never forget. He said, I tried to convince my older brother to go fishing with me. But because the family needed extra money, Jack Cash went to work at a sawmill. While at the sawmill, Jack had an accident. He fell into the saw. Even though he would linger for a few days, the injuries were just too much for his body. And so Johnny said, the family gathered around the bedside of his older brother. Here's what he said happened. He said, I bent over his head and put my cheek against his. And I said, goodbye, Jack. Then at 6.30 a.m., he woke up. He opened his eyes. And he said, why is everybody crying over me, Mama? <laughs> Mama, don't you see the river? <laughs> no, son, I, I, I don't see anything. Mama, don't you hear the angels singing? It's beautiful. No, son, I, I, I can't hear the singing. There's a tear rolling down Jack's cheek and he said, Mama, can't you see the beautiful city? Oh, Mama, there he is. I wish you could come with me. And with that, he said, Jack died. Here's what Johnny Cash wrote. He said, Jack's influence on me was profound. He always wanted to be a preacher and in a way, he is. His life still speaks to me. He said, when we were kids... He tried to turn me from the way of death to the way of life. To steer me toward the light. And since he died, his words have been like signposts for me. I hadn't always gone the right way, he said. But at least I know where it was. And Jack's faith in Christ and his final vision of heaven always stayed with me. And he said this, whenever I sang those good old songs, Peace in the Valley, I'll Fly Away, How Beautiful Heaven Must Be, he said, I always felt the peace of God flood my heart. Now, if you know anything about his life, he didn't always live a saintly life, did he? And he would admit that in his book. He said, I lived like a sinner most of the time, but he said, my faith in God never left me. And he later on at the end of his life, he made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And that gives us hope to each one of us, doesn't it? The hope of heaven rests in a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing to think of who's going to be there. And it's troubling to think of who's not going to be there. But the dividing line is that cross. Which side of the cross are you on today, friend? Do you know Him in a real and a personal way? Has He changed your life? Are you living for sin and for Satan? Are you out in the world playing games? Friend, I hate to tell you, but if your life were to end today, heaven would not be your home. But you can change that today. You can come to Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter how much sin is in your ledger. His grace is greater. And His blood will forgive you and cleanse you and make you new. New man, a new woman. And you can change your eternal zip code. To God's heavenly city.